Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Today is a special day. I mean, it's not every day that you have the chance to sit down and chat with one of your professional idols. Ellen Lepton is a writer, curator, educator, and designer. Ellen is the Betty Cook and William O. Steinmetz Design Chair at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. She serves as a senior curator at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City. She has authored more than 30 books in the last 30 years on the topics of graphic design, design culture, and typography. I have personally included her textbooks as required readings in courses for my graphic communications management students. Ellen is a powerful voice in design and typography who has shaped and continues to shape the narrative of the design industry. I recently saw Ellen give a keynote address at a conference put on by the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, RGD. It was there that Ellen and two of her co-authors, Kalina Sales and Leslie Zia, shared their forthcoming book that is so relevant and so needed in our industry and in our world right now. The book is called Extra Bold, a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers. I nodded along intently with the hour-long talk. I immediately pre-ordered the book that was set to release the following week. And I also pre-ordered a copy for a colleague and friend, Chris Embedkar, who sits on our school's equity, diversity, and inclusion committee, actively working to break down barriers and provide opportunities for greater inclusion throughout the school. I was also feeling brave. I sent Ellen an email asking her to come on this little podcast called Talk Paper Scissors and to chat about her most recent book. When I received an email in my inbox from Ellen that very same day agreeing to chat, I nearly jumped for joy. And the first person I thought of when I got this email was my friend, Chris. Chris and I make a great team for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons has to do with the fact that we think about things from very different perspectives. If I overlook something, he's right there to fill in the gap. If there's something that he doesn't quite see, I'm usually right there to pick up where he left off. I wanted Chris to be a part of this special chance to chat with someone doing such great work in this area for our industry. So I am pleased to say that Chris is co-hosting this episode with me. Hey, Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Diana, thank you so much for having me today. For the listeners that don't know me, my name is Chris Embedkar, and I'm a lecturer at Ryerson University, just like Diana. I've been teaching for five years now, and I teach courses in creativity, graphic design, and digital media. And yes, Diana and I have taught together and developed courses together quite a bunch now, and it's been such a positive influence on me. 
We definitely work well together, and what I love about Diana so much is that she recognizes her privilege as a white design educator. She's done a lot of work to learn and understand anti-racist and anti-discriminatory pedagogy, and she's always looking to amplify BIPOC and other marginalized voices in the classroom. It's just so refreshing to work with someone who just knows and gets why this is so important. Just like our lovely guest today, Ellen. As an intersectional minority myself, I appreciate allies like this in the industry so much. Thank you, Chris. Those are really kind words. I really and truly love Ellen's new book, with whom she shares co-authorship with a number of diverse voices. Before we get into the interview with Ellen, and she shares her incredible insights about this world of feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary graphic design, I want to share my favorite parts of this book, and I'm going to invite Chris to do the same. I have two favorites, and both will show off my inner type and printing geek. The first is around typographic binaries. Now, in the book, Ellen describes the work of Judith Butler, whose groundbreaking 1990 book, Gender Trouble, explores the concepts of male and female, which she argues are socially constructed categories. Judith's work rejects rigid definitions of gender and the oppressive binaries fixed gender identity upholds. Furthermore, she argues that everyone's gender evolves over time, which applies to transgender and cisgender people alike, and that our embodiment of masculinity and femininity shift in different settings. Now, Ellen takes it one step further and applies it in a unique way to the world of typography. Ellen brings forth the notion that binary structures exist within the building blocks of design, including typography. She expresses that serif and sans-serif typefaces exist on a spectrum. Ellen describes the work of typographer John Barry's taxonomy of letter endings. He suggests that a serif can be many things, from a spiky spur to a massive, blocky slab, or the fact that the serif might not be a thing at all, because even letters that are considered sans-serif take on many different forms. For example, stems and strokes that swell, bend, pucker, or flare resist neat binary categories. Furthermore, Ellen explores the patriarchal idea of a type family, and that the predictable and matchy-matchy nature of typographic families don't mimic the reality of human family structures. She highlights type designer Lee Maldonado's experimental typeface called Glyph World that rejects the traditional uniform members of a type family, instead favoring a much less conforming and individualistic group of letter forms. My other favorite part of the book is a queer history of design. I love that Extra Bold helps start conversations about these important histories that better reflect the diverse makeup of students and educators in the classroom. This book is a place where these histories are documented and legitimized through ink on paper, existing in a physical book that can be read and highlighted and shared and cherished. One story in particular brought me to tears. It's the story of a woman named Ruth Ellis. 
Now, Ruth was born in 1899 in Springfield, Illinois, and she became the first woman in the state of Michigan to run her own printing company. Ruth was an African-American woman who lived openly as a lesbian throughout her life, her father accepting her sexuality without judgment as she brought girlfriends home as a teenager. In adulthood, Ruth and her partner, Cecilene, opened a printing company that also doubled as a vibrant gathering place for Detroit's African-American queer community. Here, they helped young people in need of food, books, or a place to stay. On Ruth's 100th birthday, she led the annual Dyke March in San Francisco. As a businesswoman, activist, and community builder, Ruth carries an incredible legacy, and she's an inspiration to so many. I now know her story. Her story inspires me to play a role in carrying on her legacy. My future lectures about the history of printing will include Ruth's story and other stories that significantly contribute to our industry's history, as well as our collective history. Chris, what about you? What's your favorite part? Ah, uh, Diana, you stole my favorite part. But yes, I agree. It's so incredibly important to bring queer design history, black design history, and indigenous design history into the classroom. So, you know, I love a good infographic and this book has tons of them. They're so well done. But I think my favorite part isn't one specific section. It's the fact that the authors really did a great job by including various voices from marginalized communities throughout the book. As we know, sharing perspectives helps us to increase our understanding so that we can be more empathetic to others, and I really appreciate that aspect of the book throughout. It's when we hear about what others have gone through, that's when we really can learn and understand how people feel excluded or discriminated against. It's the amplification of marginalized voices for me. Over the next 20 or so minutes, you'll hear from Ellen about why this book and the subject matter contained within is so needed in the field of design. You'll also hear why design is the perfect discipline to normalize the visual language of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Ellen also provides insights about the way in which design is a tool for change, helping to give visual shape to social movements. And, as one of the greatest typographic minds on the planet, she gives as near a perfect answer as possible to my question about the single typeface she would use for the rest of her life if she had to choose. Let's get into it. Hi, Ellen. We are so, so pleased that you are here. We love, love, love your new book called Extra Bold, a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary field guide for graphic designers. So how did this project get started? I've written a lot of books and I have the most fun when I collaborate with other people. And in 2018, I attended an event at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, organized by two graduating seniors, Valentina Vergara and Farah Cafe. And their senior project 
was about the missing women in their design education. They went to a very famous school of art in New York City, where a majority of the students in graphic design were women. And they were women from many different backgrounds. And yet, in their education, most of the examples, if not 99% of the examples of design and designers who were held up to them as exemplars in their profession were white men. And they, instead of um, accepting that, they made it their senior project to fill in the blanks. And I was so inspired by their project and by the energy of the audience around their project, I was just like blown away. And I thought this would be such a great subject for a book, but the book shouldn't just be written by me. It should be co-created by others in our community. And I plunged in and started working with Farah and Valentina and my friend Jenny Tobias. And we asked other people to consult with us on the book and ultimately <laughs> invited them to be co-authors of the book. And the making of the book as a collaborative project ended up fulfilling the purpose. Because if the purpose is to broaden the conversation about graphic design, then it should be built as a conversation. Yeah, so the book was definitely written in a way that it felt collaborative. It felt that you could feel all of the perspectives. And so I, I want to ask, how did you determine the scope of the book with such a huge, potentially intimidating topic area? This was such a large undertaking. Were you ever concerned that the work would be perceived? Um, how would the work would be perceived by the different communities represented? I worried about that every day. I still worry about it. I have a lot of fear of making a mistake. I had moments of thinking maybe I shouldn't do this book as a white woman, as an older white woman. <laughs> why was I writing a book about this subject? But I decided to do it anyway, because it's always easier not to do things and not to speak up and not to um, take a risk. And for me, especially in 2020, it seemed more important than ever for me to do the work of learning that a book like this creates and demands. And to simply retreat and say, well, this is the year I'll only read about feminism and inclusion and anti-racism. And later I'll do something, later I'll speak about it. I felt that that wasn't right. And that in my role as 
a writer and a teacher and a curator, I have to kind of jump in and be part of the conversation, even at the risk of sometimes being wrong and making a mistake. I too feel like I am constantly learning and that I, I sometimes feel that exact same thing that I, I fear that I will offend someone not knowingly or just not have all of the information I need. But at the same time, like you said, there's, there's really, this is the time for action. This is the time to speak up. So I'm so glad that you wrote this book. It's incredible. And on that same topic, well, I didn't write why, it alone. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Absolutely. Why do you feel it's important? for graphic designers specifically, because really it's a field guide for graphic designers. So why do you think it's important for graphic designers to view their work through a feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary lens? Well, graphic design is in the business of creating norms. In a way, that's the definition of what we learn in school is creating brand standards and using typography consistently and checking our work for typos and <laughs> correctly applying typographic styles to an entire document. It's a normative industry. And for its entire history, the industry has been dominated by white male Western producers. We are only just beginning to see the success of white women in the field. We are beginning to see the success of BIPOC people of all genders, but we're just beginning. And so, graphic designers have the opportunity to open up this normative vocabulary, to be intentional and conscious about asking, you know, where does our visual language come from? Where do the rules that we hold so sacred come from? Um, whose voices are excluded? What assumptions do we make? when we create an icon or choose a color, <laughs> who's being excluded? And that includes you know, gender exclusion, uh, racial exclusion, East, West, North, South exclusion, and ableism. These are, and, and more, right? But those are really important axes in which a kind of inherited power structure is very much preserved and upheld through graphic design from day one of freshman year. I think you're absolutely right. And, and we, Chris and I, perhaps I can speak for the two of us, we absolutely understand the power that design holds in society. And I mean, we see student work and the incredible, the incredible stuff that they do. And we hope that we can, we can help bring this language into the classroom. But what do you say to someone who doesn't necessarily understand the value in learning about what you've presented in the book? Or what would you say to someone who thinks that design is just making pretty pictures? That's, that's what design is. I would say to that person that design 
needs to serve everybody, that what we create is not just for our own neighbors or our own family, but is for everyone in society. And that therefore it needs to reflect diverse points of view. Um, design isn't just about making things pretty, it's about making them accessible. It's about making them function. It's about making things that communicate and are legible. And that requires often questioning our, our exclusive position as the creator of something and all the knowledge and forethought that we bring to what we make and asking, how would someone with a different background use this? Or how would someone react to this joke or to this image if they came from a different background? And sometimes that means holding back on things that you really enjoy because they, they might be hurtful to someone else. So we love the visuals inside your book. We think it's incredible that you use these illustrations to help simplify complex topics. Uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement, especially on social media, design had a huge role because people would share beautifully designed infographics and in turn, this amplified the cause. What are your thoughts on graphic design's use as a tool in social movements online? And do you feel that it's used effectively? Could it be used better? I love the way graphic design was used, um, is used in that movement. And actually a lot of my education during 2020 and 2021 came from following activists and anti-racist educators on Instagram. It is such um, an accessible medium. It's one where you can, you know, quickly dive into a conversation and read what's going on and read uh, comments and people correcting each other uh, and, and people learning from each other in this medium that you carry around in your pocket. And I found that extremely compelling to me as someone wanting to learn and eager to learn I thought it was, has been a, a beautiful medium um, that brings in a lot of different voices and different ways of communicating that aren't the same as reading a 200 page book by Tanezi Coates. It's like very dense, but to be able to kind of move in and out of a conversation. And what advice would you give to design educators who want to implement feminist, inclusive, anti-racist, non-binary concepts into their curriculum? Well, one thing is to show students examples of design by diverse creators. And luckily, <laughs> there is so much new scholarship so many new websites and online courses and beautiful books and museum projects that that work is a lot easier because of this outpouring of creative scholarship 
aimed at diversifying the canon of graphic design. So for very little effort, folks, <laughs> a graphic design educator can share this material with their students and ask them to research material to find what comes from their heritage and to bring that to the group and help to educate people. This new history of graphic design is being created by graphic designers who are tired of the singular narrative um, and are doing the work so that educators can share it. It's really a beautiful moment. And so much of it happened after my book was done. <laughs> you know, there is so much going on this year that I want to write another book. But that book is being written by others. You know, these, these new histories are, are being created by diverse communities. Well, there's a wonderful online resource called the People's Graphic Design Archive which is a crowdsourced visual resource full of ephemera and posters and videos and interviews created by all kinds of people, mostly in the 20th century, that is just full of inspiring work like underground newspapers and political posters and campaign buttons and just incredible. That's one beautiful resource. Um, in spring of 2021, Silas Monroe and Tashika Arsenault Sutton organized a lecture series online of BIPOC graphic design history that was an event to participate in and of course is preserved so that these wonderful live conversations can now be part of the record of graphic design history. So those are two, but there's just so much. Um, it's, it's been a very rich and productive period. Thank you. I look forward to checking those out. Thank you. So I have, uh, I guess, started a little tradition here at Talk Paper Scissors uh, with, with guests. And I have a final question. And I, you are the person I am dying to ask this of. Uh, so if you could choose just one typeface, Ellen Lupton, for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Well, currently, I'm in love with New Rail Alphabet which is the typeface we used in Extra Bold. And it was designed by Margaret Calvert in the early 1960s. She is a British type designer and information designer who helped design the highway and transit signs of the United Kingdom. And this typeface was beautifully digitized by A2 Type Foundry. Um, in collaboration with Margaret Calvert and is a fantastic Helvetica alternative <laughs> that's just legible and open and humane and was created to kind of unify society and make people safe when they cross the street and drive down the road. 
Uh, so to me, it, it really exemplifies graphic design's public purpose, and it's created by one of the great women of 20th century graphic design. I could listen to you talk about this all day, but I know you don't have all day. So thank you so, so much for being here with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I think this should be part of our curriculum. Uh, in fact, I will be suggesting it and I'm sure Chris will be as well. It is, uh, it's, it's a really special book. And thank you so much for collaborating and writing and doing all of the important work in regards to being extra bold. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to meet you both. I appreciate it. I just wanted to add in a little piece here, just saying, you know, when I think back to myself uh, and I identify as an inter intersectional minority, and I think back to when I first realized I was creative and I wanted to get into this field and how I remember, you know, going to the schools and the open houses and not seeing people that looked like me and, and how that felt for me, I, it just, it, from the heart, it means so much, the work that you're doing and the and with the other authors with this book. And I'm thinking about all of the other, you know, little brown boys like me that are creative and that want to, you know, pursue this and just thinking about how now they probably can and they, you know, they feel that it's a much more inclusive environment for, for people like us. So, so thank you for that, really. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for leading the way. And I'm getting emotional now, of course. <laughs>